Hi, and welcome to Apple Jam, a place where my friend Neil McCutcheon and myself, Bernardo Morales, discuss Beatles and Beatle-related records. These conversations are hosted in Clubhouse, where we meet every two weeks to discuss an album. We'd like to invite you to join the Apple Jam Club in Clubhouse and to follow us on Instagram. Now, without any further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the second um, edition of Apple Jam. Um, I'm Neil McCutcheon, and my friend and ex-colleague is Bernardo Morales. Hello, everybody. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to go through um, the Beatles albums and discuss them in no particular order. And anyone who's in the audience... Um, if you want to come up on stage, um, then, you know, you just put your hand up with the hands up sign. You can send us a message with that little triangle thing, the little paper airplane, or uh, you can leave quietly. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to do this in any particular order. We're going to start it, uh, you know, just uh, informally and talk about the tracks that, that we want to talk about. Great. And um, so I'll just give some background information for anyone who's not familiar with Revolver. Um, and then I'll hand over to you, Bernardo. So um, they had, Beatles hadn't been recording for a long time. They'd had a holiday. And they came back after um, three months of holiday, which was unprecedented in their career. Um, they came back into the spring of 1966 to record Revolver. Um, they've already been experimenting in the studio um, with their previous album and really taking some big strides in sound. And um, now they're doing something very new. And um, we'll talk about how zeitgeisty it was and so on uh, later on. How did you first get to know this album, Bernardo? What's your history with it? Well, um, how I got the, the first time I ever heard it, I was working in a shop that was across. It was in a shopping center, and mm -hmm. across our stall there was a music store called E Music. Yeah. Um, and the girl that worked there knew that I was starting to discover the Beatles, and she just right. one day she just blasted Revolver from the shop. Um, <laughs> Were you in the shop or no? I was I was working, and she was like, "Are oh, you going to like this?" And she just blasted okay. Taxman. Oh, that's great! And that was brilliant. Yes, I went yeah. and bought the, I went and bought it. And was that in in Costa Rica? That was in Costa Rica. Yes. Cool. How about you? Well, I was on holiday in the summer of 1981, um, which is the summer after John Lennon got shot, of course. So I sort of was more aware of the Beatles after that than I had been before. And we were sort of house-sitting for a friend of the family, and they just had a pile of Beatles albums. So they had Revolver, they had the White Album, they had Abbey Road, and Let It Be, none of which I'd heard, you know. It was a lovely glorious hot summer and it was also um first time i'd ever put on stereo headphones you know which I, again i just wasn't aware of so it all came together right the experience of stereo and the experience of these beatles albums and i just sat with them you know day after day and um and got into positive them. experience because revolver <laughs> in particular has a very kind of strange stereo mix a very 60s stereo mix so it can i i myself i find it a little bit uncomfortable to listen to it wearing headphones that's interesting i've always liked those mixes a lot i think i agree with you revolver you can really tell okay this was basically made on a four track because you can hear where things are grouped together you know, it's like certain sounds are, are basically um, bounced onto the same track, and you can hear that. You can basically hear uh, that everything's very simple. But I think a lot of the songs kind of benefit from that. Um, I, I know when they produce the new mixes, they, they tend to, you know, they, they make the, the bass more prominent, which is nice, but everything yeah, kind of goes more central. Mixes, right, not the 87 ones. Yeah, that kind of thing. No, no. That I'm, I'm talking about the brand new mixes, like of the White Album and things like that. Right. Yeah. The, the more modern mixes. I mean, they are Martins. cool. Yeah, but they do tend to center more things. And I remember distinctly one of the things I liked in the '80s about the Beatles is when when I was listening to I don't know 
Madness or ELO, people I liked at the time. Everything was kind of shoved towards the center, and the drums and bass were always, always, always dead center. But put on a Beatles album, and you just never knew what you were going to get. Like, oh, my God, there's some vocals coming from the right, and there's something moving from side to side. So, yeah, I quite like the, the mix. But I do think it'll be hard for them to do an, uh, a sort of updated version of this mix because of, of this album because I don't think the recording technology was super hot. Well, it was the same technology as Sgt. Pepper, really. Well, the then maybe, maybe they'll be able to do it. Maybe. Yeah. And if you, if you listen, we were talking before um, starting, we were talking about the song track, the Yellow Submarine song yep. track. Yep. Some of the mixes on that album are great. I really like Eleanor. Oh, Rigby. I like them. Yeah. And Love You Too, which come from Revolver. And, yes. and you can really tell the difference between, and even Yellow Submarine, you can tell. Oh, the these are, those are superb mixes. Ab- I agree. Absolutely superb mixes. And uh, similar to the ones on, on Love, mm. um, you, you know, I Am the Walrus and Help. And there are just so many songs on that where, where those are the, the sort of the ultimate mixes. But they're less quirky, you know. Yeah, but there are some songs that really benefit from from those mixes. I mean, getting yeah. into the revolver thing. I mean, yeah. um, baby, you're a rich man. Sounds great. Um, yes, only a northern song. It's all too much. Do you know the one I would like to um, hear remix most of all, and maybe we can talk about this one first? Is tomorrow never knows because yeah. you know it's just such an incredibly groundbreaking song. And it, it, I mean, I, I guess the leap that was made in popular music with that song. I mean, I can't think of when that would have been equaled. It's just like stepping right into a new era. But with the mix of that song, I think it. I don't know the bass. There's not enough bass, and it, it, it kind of sounds a bit tinny. I mean, I know some of it's supposed to sound tinny, but I, I just I would like a, a fuller mix of that song with more bass and sort of more punch yes i agree with you although i do like the sound of the drums on on the 2009 mix um oh. okay to me yeah okay the drums i mean it's a nice it's a very nice drum pad and um this is i mean for anyone who doesn't know this is a this is a complete i guess it's the first really completely experimental song but in, in pop way, music, I mean, I'm going to say in in the whole of pop music, I would dare to say that as well. It was only one chord; it was only C, right? Yeah, you, you can you can. Yeah, there are certain changes, but you can play it on guitar with one chord. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Ian McDonald, who's my favorite Beatles biographer, he says <laughs> fans at the time. Uh, must have uh, had a, a kind of experience of anarchy and awe. <laughs> <laughs> I like that just um, because it because it was made with loops and it, it was made without a conventional chord sequence, which is very interesting. I was watching this documentary on Apple TV Plus called "Watch the Sound" with um, yeah. Mark Ronson, yeah, and and they talk about the samples that Paul used um, yeah. for, for "Tomorrow Never Knows." I've got the snippet here. I'm going to play it. See if you can hear it. Go on, go on. So we've got all the loops playing yeah. in the studio, lots of them. Yeah, you know, just bringing them in. On faders or on faders? Yeah. Just they're constantly playing, so you can just bring them in. Yeah. And just luckily in the right place, right? Because they're playing on a random loop. It's just knowing. It's pure genius, Mark. Pure genius, I meant. Where did you actually sample, like, the seagulls and the things that... The tape loops that you made to bring... Yeah. Where were you sampling that stuff from? I would just do a lot of it in my attic. But the seagulls, those... Things. I think it's just me. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Into into Mike. Hi. Yes, could you hear that? Yeah, I could hear it. There was a bit of a bounce back, but I think for the the, the um, listeners can let us know if they managed to hear it clearly. But um, yeah, I um, the the thing about those loops, 
I think most people think that that were they were sort of John's idea because he gets a lot of credit as being the you know the innovator and all that because of course it's his song and he's driving the idea for the song but the loops were Paul's creation and he just doesn't get enough credit for being an innovator you know because everyone just thinks of him as the you know the the ultra melodic songwriter and the sort of control freak and all that but at that time Paul was really pushing the boat out yeah I think that was when he just moved into St. John's Wood I think he's he's yeah uh, so he says that he was hanging out with a lot of um very interesting musicians um it wasn't until later that John got into it another thing I like about uh you know, Tomorrow Never Knows that kind of blows me away is that this was the first track they were recorded for the album. So it's not like this is the culmination of a long process. They yeah. just walked into the studio and they just started off really experimental. Was that even before Rain and um, Paperback yes. Writer? Yep, it was the first one. So, I mean, and, uh, you know, and, and Sgt. Pepper was the same, if you think about it, because Day in the Life uh, was v- very early and um, with Strawberry Fields and everything. So when they're starting off in the studio, they already know we are doing something completely different here. Yeah. Well, actually, now that you were in the beginning, you said that they took a three-month break from Rubber, Soul yeah. and Revolver. I was always yeah. under the impression that Rubber, Soul and Revolver were kind of recorded at, at around the same time. That's what that's what George thinks as well. That's what George said in the anthology. Yes, he also said that they would work very nicely together as a nice pair. But they're they're so different. I mean, one they of the are, things yeah. that I like about Revolver that one of the things that makes it sound quite modern is that there's a kind of there's a, a characteristic guitar sound that's on several tracks here. It's you know, like a casino uh, sound. And yeah, and your bird can sing, and um, it's on She Said, She Said, and everything. And I know, you know, a lot of modern bands, like they strive to get this kind of unitary sound for an album, like, you know, and then the Beatles generally didn't do that. But I think Revolver does have a kind of integrated sound because of that very chimey guitar. I mean, I, I know it was influenced by the birds and everything, but it's really distinctive. I've never heard anything quite like it. Yeah, I think at around that time, Paul bought a an Epiphone Casino, and then uh, George, John and George bought the same guitar, so they all changed guitars. Wow, that's I, I didn't even know that. I mean, and what happened to that sound? Because you just never hear it again. It's like they just dumped it and thought, move on, you yeah. know? Yeah, they didn't take it into Sgt. Pepper, and, and they didn't recycle it during the White Album. So no. it's very strange. Yeah, maybe maybe Jeff Emmerich. I think he quit during the White Album sessions, so that might have had to do with it. Something about Jeff Emmerich. Um, so he was the engineer for Revolver. Um, he'd just been promoted, so that it was a, it was a new job for him, and he was only twenty years old. You know, so but you know he's there going from his previous job to this job, and he's suddenly working with the biggest band in the world doing this really experimental album here's what he said about revolver i love this from the day it came out revolver changed the way that everyone else made records and he he said that other people strove to get the same sound in the studio like american studios better studios tried to get the same sounds um but they couldn't because they weren't using the same band so really <laughs> like yeah yeah but Which jeff emmerich is that he gets so he's so much credit for what goes on in beatles albums i think he he was i mean he was told off a few times by people at abbey road for experimenting with with the equipment was he <laughs> that that makes me laugh yeah, you know because he, he was 20 of course that's what he's going to want to be doing Course, yeah, I think he was the one who started using Leslie speakers as microphones, which gave George tell everyone a little bit about the Leslie speaker because that was that's an interesting thing because that became a real solid technique that they used again and again. Yeah, it's it's a speaker that comes in a Hammond organ, right? It's a rotating speaker. Um, and I think Jeff Emmerich started using it to to amplify guitars, so that's where we get that kind of very distinctive George Harrison sound. Yeah, um, and I think he started doing that during the revolver sessions. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, and that the vocal for "Tomorrow Never Knows" the, mm. uh, with the bit where it goes very thin and reedy, 
is uh, d- done that way. And nowadays you can do it through one click you know, with garage band, you know, yeah. or something like that. But at that time, again, that's another innovation to process the vocal like that. And do you think that it sounds like the Dalai Lama on top of a hill? <laughs> it's as close as you can get, I think. <laughs> I always loved that uh, vocal. It's, it's, a, it's a superb idea, the way it just pulls right back. The main thing I wish about Tomorrow Never Knows is that it was twice as long. Yeah, I just think, works. you know, because it started drone music and in the 90s you've got so much drone music and all the tracks are about 10 minutes long, right? At mm. least. And then Tomorrow Never Knows comes in at probably at less than three minutes. Yeah, I think it's like 2.30 or something. And I, yeah. I guess at that time... It was just so beyond their ken to be like, right, let's just stick on another three minutes of all these loops and things. I mean, they got there eventually, but uh, I think it was just too strange. I heard something in an interview that there were people like holding pencils, like cassettes in pencils and pieces of tape and stuff that it was extremely difficult to record. Yeah, to record. Have you ever seen the scene in Mad Men? No, I haven't. It's slightly, um, it's slightly contrived because, of course, Tomorrow Never Knows is the last track on Revolver, not the first track. But there's a scene in Mad Men where one of the characters, I think he's just had a hard day at work or something, or maybe he's had a breakup in his relationship, and he just he's bought Revolver and he gets out. He just drops the needle on the record, <laughs> and it's Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, and he just looks, you know, baffled. He's just thinking, what on earth have I just bought, you know? And he takes it off before it's finished. That's one thing that, I, I mean, I experienced Revolver in, for the first time probably in the late 90s, um, early yeah. 2000s. Um, I wonder what it must have been like to experience it in 1966. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely. Because uh, when we hear it now, it's just like, well, it's a bit, you know, it's drone music. It's okay. But yeah. In 1966, it could have been that um, anarchy and all. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant song. Love it. And, of course, the lyrics are from the Psychedelic Experience book, which was Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, psychedelic pioneers, sort of processing what they'd got from um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and, and John Lennon literally just, just quoting that. Have you ever read that book? I did read it. I did read it at one point when I was about 20. Um, I mean, it's baffling to me, but that, I mean, that really is from such a completely different culture. Um, but um, I, I, I believe that... I've, I haven't read the Leary book. I've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I think the Leary book uh, just wanted to um, draw a parallel between taking psychedelics and this after-death experience. Because I, I, I guess that when you take psychedelics you might be in such a state that you might wonder at points am i alive or am i dead mm. another thing about this song um about tomorrow never knows that i always yeah. wonder is that i mean john must have brought the song into the studio and he must have gone like okay i've got this song just playing whatever chord <laughs> he was playing i wonder what paul thought like oh i can like i've got all these loops maybe we can use you know what i mean like, uh, yeah i wonder I can't imagine just bringing that song and presenting it to a band and going like this. It's one of the things I love about Revolver in particular and Sgt. Pepper. I think this is the, it's their peak era. Revolver is when they're starting to go into like peak Beatles, right? And I think they're just working together in this kind of, this team, this wonderful chemical workshop, and somebody's coming in with an idea, and they're just running with it. You know, they're so inspired. I mean, later on, that falls off, I think, in the later albums. They start working individually. Then Paul starts, you know, marshalling people a bit more on Abbey Road. I think this is when they're really, they're all in it for the joy and the fun and uh, you're happy to collaborate with each other absolutely and this is that's what makes it the most wonderful album i think really it's just revolver and sergeant pepper where they're having that you know incredible uh, collaboration i agree i think this is when they started to become very efficient recording artists rather than a live band as well so yeah, absolutely, because the, the, the album didn't take that long to record, um, you know. Yeah. yeah, most albums didn't take too long to record. Um, yeah. Um. 
Um, what do you think of the cover? Before we move on, do you like the cover? Do you like I, the artwork? I, I didn't used to like it very much. I used to think the drawings weren't very good when, uh-huh. when I was a kid. <laughs> and also that kind of George part of the cover where you see kind of the real eyes, but they're in, in, inside this drawing. I always thought it was a bit weird. <laughs> but it's grown yeah. on me. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a... I mean, again, at the time, I can't think of any other record covers that looked anything like that. I think the black and white was pretty distinctive at the time. I mean, there was a kind of black and white aesthetic with early 60s London, for sure. Mm-hmm. But at this time, everything was getting, that, I imagine, I believe, very colourful in London. So I think the black and white would have stood out. Yeah. And also the kind of, I don't know, is it arrogance? But like, we don't need to put our name on the cover. You know, they'd done that, obviously, before. They did just that like, with, yeah. I think, in For Sale and um, Robert Soul, right? Exactly. It's just like, yeah, everyone knows who we are. So here's the as arrogant as the White Album. <laughs> no. <laughs> What's your next pick? Let's talk For about um, Yellow Submarine. Okay. <laughs> so we can get it out of the way. <laughs> Tell me something about that. I have to say, um, I don't feel that song really belongs in this album. Um, <laughs> Standalone single should have been. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, and then it was part of the Yellow Submarine um, soundtrack. And then later in the 90s, the song track. Um, mm-hmm. And when I've, and I think I I knew about the Yellow Submarine soundtrack uh, soundtrack. Sorry, when I when I was a kid, so I was yeah. surprised to see that it was uh, track six on on Revolver. Yeah. Um. It. I have to say, it's not my favorite song. Uh, I think it. I think it might be my least favorite. Yeah. And I think it's one of my least favorite Beatles songs, actually. But I. That, I mean, when I was a kid, I loved it. I think it. It was probably my first introduction to the Beatles, and I'm sure my dad played me Yellow Submarine because I, I remember the, the the all the sound effects and you know I knew so I, uh, I've known this all my life and well the sound effects you know, I think are brilliant they sound great yeah I love that I love the bit with the sound effects but yeah, really drop I, the I, cable, I drop the cable bit. I love that I just I just think can you play the bit with the sound effects let me let me have a look just one second I think I got it here. There you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> I love the sound effects. Me too. I, I love how the drop the cable bit sounds like it's being screamed from, from far, which is something you yeah. don't really um, hear on albums a lot. I didn't even realize they said drop the cable. I think now I'm going to go I, back and listen to I it. I think that's what it says. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't actually, just little snippets of conversation. That's another thing I like about Beatles records. They have these little snippets. Um, yeah. And, but I mean, yeah, the song, it's a kid's you know, song, as you said. But it's a kid's it's song. The fact that it's a kid's song, because I really like Octopus's Garden. I think that's a brilliant song. Oh, I, me too. I like that too. I like, have I you ever played song. it to your? Have you ever played it to your daughter? Yet? What Octopus's Garden? No, Yellow Submarine. I haven't played her Yellow Submarine. I, I okay. bought a book. I bought the about the Octopus's Garden book, which comes with with um with Ringo narrating it, which is just okay. him narrating oh, that's the, the lyrics of the song, which is quite nice. Something else about Yellow Submarine, um, once you hear George singing the chorus, he does some harmonies, you can't unhear it. It's like a real dirge, like he's going, yeah, you know, Yellow Submarine, Yellow <laughs> Submarine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you just, I, I just skip it now, Bernardo, I have to say. Yeah, but, well, I always yeah. skip this track when I'm, li- when yeah. I'm listening to Revolver. I, I wish it was I wish it was track one or the last track on the album, so it would be easier to skip. And, and here's the mystery. Why was it a single? I mean, look at the choices you've got on this album. Oh, let's make Yellow Submarine a single? Because it was with Ellen Rigby, right? Yeah, it was a B-side, right? Or was it a double A-side? I think it was a double A-side, and it's just, you have to wonder. To, to, to give Ringo a, song, a single, perhaps? Because there aren't that many Ringo singles. I mean, I guess they were all quite high at that time, so... Yeah, and I think before this, bef- before um, Yellow Submarine, the song they'd given him was What Goes On, that kind of country song. 
yeah. on, on, on Robert's Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the fact that Ringo gets to do, uh, you know, that he gets to do songs. And, and then on Sgt. Pepper, of course, he gets to do one of the key songs. So yeah. I, lo- I love that. Uh, yeah, but, um, yeah. Anyway, it can't rescue Yellow Submarine for me. Oh. I guess if I'd had kids, uh, that might have been the, the, the gateway drug to the Beatles. I, I might have played even with Yellow that, Sub- like, I prefer All Together Now, Octopus's Garden, like all yeah. the kind of more kiddie songs. But I don't know, yeah. there's just something about Yellow Submarine. I like the movie. I like the cartoon. I think it's really nice. Oh, I love the movie. I yeah, love the movie. I've got it yeah. on Blu-ray as well, which is... Ooh. I think they remastered it and it looks great, you know? Fancy. I don't even know what Blu-ray is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fancy format. I believe it's a, a, a new type of disc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. Next. You choose next. Oh, God, so many. Okay, uh, my favourite... My favourite on uh, track on Revolver is Taxman. Yep. I think it's incredible. And I first heard this um, in, in 1980, you won't remember, but there was, a, there was a, record, a couple of records called Stars on 45, and one of them was a Beatles anthology, which was like uh, little clips of Beatles songs redone over a disco beat. Can you imagine? Wow. It got to number two in the charts. And um, there was a bit... You know, with Taxman and I, just as the minute I heard the harmonies, that you know, the bit where it drops and it goes, Taxman, you know, the second time, I just thought, what's that? That's great. I think that's a great piece of writing. It, melodically, I just don't know if that if that's George excelling himself or if it's that somebody else suggesting that really that kind of blue note there. I think it's wonderful, and I think they worked so hard on the, you know, the lovely arrangement here. I love mm-hmm. the weird canting at the beginning as well. I mean, that just became normal later on, right? Yes, um, you know, I mean, it, it's but, similar to Please Me. Yeah, exactly. So maybe deliberately, uh, a deliberate echo of that. But with um, those kind of strange sounds going on through it, I mean, when people first put on the album, they must have thought, what's gone wrong with my you know, record player? <laughs> yeah, I have to say this is one of my favorite bass lines of any Beatles song. Why? I, I agree with you. Why do you like the bass line so much? Because it's, it's so colorful compared to what do, they were doing before. Um, right. And it's just very punchy as well. I, I, I really like it. And Would you say it's the first time the bass has a major part in a, in a song? You know, like the bass... It, it it really creates the identity of that song. Yes, because you have that guitar part, which is kind of um, which I mean, you have the bass which goes along the whole song, and then and then you have that kind of guitar part that doesn't go uh, through all the verse, you know. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, you, so you can hear the bass as the main instrument on the song. And and I think unusually for them, it's completely at some points it's kind of. It's really primitivized, right? I mean, Beatles bass lines are always, you know, so melodic and inventive. And this one's just like, it's like a new wave bass line, right? It's mm. just, you know, did I guess Paul you know that the... Uh, huh? Did Paul play it? I guess he did. But who played the guitar solo? Paul did, didn't he? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. why I wonder whether he played the um, the bass on this song or whether it was. George. I think I think I think he played the bass as well, but I think he was badgering George about the guitar bit, and then he just said, "Give give it here." Yeah, that'll <laughs> just do it. Cranked out this amazing again a really experimental guitar solo. It sounds like Indian music. It's completely. It's a you know we would have called that a thrash guitar solo at some point. It's amazing. Just. Out of out of the blue, you know. I guess he'd been listening to stuff like The Birds, um, um, Eight Miles High must have been out by that time, and that's got some pretty wild guitar in it. Yeah, it's 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 a very good solo. Like, don't get me wrong, but I just wonder where it came from because I, it's not very Paul. It's not very melodic. It's very kind of rocky, and and it was during a time when he was writing uh, many love songs as well for his yeah. Asher. I wonder if he was just angry when he when he played it, you know. Yeah. And it, and you know that it it reappears later in the album and tomorrow never knows backwards. Really? I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that. It's the same same solo. Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah. Which is I think <laughs> worth mentioning. I think this was in this album um I think there's one of the songs um I can't remember is it I'm only sleeping? That features the first backwards guitar solo. 
That's right. I'm only sleeping. And it took George uh, six hours to, to work that out. Yeah. And it's funny because I guess at the time he didn't know that when you're doing backwards solos, it doesn't really matter what you play. Like as long as it's in key, it'll, it's going to sound fine, you know, because it's backwards. So I feel sorry. You know, he was kind of actually reversing the track, doing the solo, you know, forwards. Or, or I actually think he worked it out on paper, like the chords and everything and what, what they should have been. Um, so this painstaking thing, and then when you listen to it, it just sounds like any other backwards guitar piece. I mean, it sounds great, but, um, you, you know, you don't need to be meticulous working it out. Yeah, but he was like that with many um, of his pieces, right? He used to really yeah. meticulously write everything. Yeah, um, and have you heard... Um, mm-hmm. Go on. No, go ahead. I just wanted to say, um, have you heard the song by The Jam called Start? No, I haven't. Ooh. So at some point, I don't know if you've got a, I don't know if you've got an iPod there or something. If you, uh, have you only got Beatles albums there? No, no, I've got everything. Okay. So just play this, just play the beginning of a song called Start by The Jam. Let me find it. See what you know. Do you know what album is on? It's on an album called Sound Effects, I think, or it may be a standalone single. Yeah, that sounds like he was inspired by Taxman. <laughs> yeah, inspired <laughs> is, is the word. I mean, I like that track too. But I'm, I'm I, I think they saying. just decided, yeah, he, you know, we, we George did it maybe with my sweet lord, so we'll just steal this back. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, George played a version of um, Taxman live. Um, oh, was it any good? I'll I'll play a bit of it. I don't know if you. This is from the. Know. This is from live in Japan, right? Yes. Have have you heard that album? Uh, no, I kind of give that one a miss because <laughs> I thought it was. I, I heard it was lackluster. Yeah, it's not the best of. Um, it's not the best live performance. But here it is. This one's called Taxman. Great song to do live. Yeah, great song. Very difficult song to do live as well. Great song to do live. And, and I remember, um, I mean, I, uh, when I was growing up, I also remember at the back of my mind, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Heath. I mean, they were the first politicians I was aware of. And because of the, because of the song? No, just be, right. no, just independently. I mean, I didn't hear the song till much later, but um, they, th- those were the biggest names and when i emerged into political consciousness at the age of five or something yeah what's your next choice my next choice would be here there and everywhere because it's one of my favorite songs oh yeah why do you like that one um i just love the melody it's such a nice melody i just love it it is it's just one of uh, it's one of his best i don't think it gets the same um, attention as say I don't know yesterday or Blackbird but I it's it's I I prefer it to either of those yeah I mean it was Beautiful. supposed to be John Lennon's favorite Paul song ever really well yeah. I, th- I thought that was uh, why don't we do it in the road I love why don't we do it in the road I really like it I like the bit where he screams yeah, um, <laughs> it, it's it's nice that John said that he liked this one because it's it's you know it's not one that we kind of associate with um, with John's musical taste, is it? I mean, it's yeah. very sweet. Yeah, he said that in 1980 um, in an interview he did for Playboy. He said he was. Oh, wow. his, he said he was his favorite Beatles song. So. I read some anecdote where you know. They were they were sitting together in '66, and John said, "Oh, you know, let's play that one. Let's do this one." Possibly preparing for the live um, tour, the the, mm. the last tour that followed. Um, yeah, so John liked it at the time as well. Amazing, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, I I love that song because yeah. is, is he even is he even on it? I mean, there is some electric guitar on it, so I guess John's there. Yeah. I don't know if he's doing it like they never played it live though, which is which is very um, it's it's a big shame. 
Shame. Yeah, shame. I don't think Paul would have been able to sing it live, though, properly. I don't know. I, I wonder if the vocals on this are slightly speeded up, um, you know, because just cheekily, just a little bit speeded up because, um, yeah, it sounds like it. But who knows? Because he was very young at the time. Mm. But he did do I, that in a few tracks. He did it in When I'm 64. Um, yeah. On, on and I just think there's a little bit of very speed going on here. But there is Early a demo on, of that song. Have you ever heard the demo? No. Well, it's not a demo, actually. Stay Have separate. you got it? Yeah, I'll play, I'll play a bit of it. Ooh. To lead a better life I need my love to be here Here Making each day of the year Changing my life with a wave of her It's lovely. It's lovely. The vocals do sound more natural on the demo. So yeah, again, I just think there was a slight very speed. My favourite bit of the song is at 155 because, I mean, um, the lead vocal is mostly not harmonised, although there are, you know, amazing harmonies going on in the background. And 155 never dies bit. Where, it, oh, where, he, where they go down. Two. Yeah, and there's two voices, but it's a surprise, right? It just comes in at that point. I think that's genius, just that touch. Let me play Fantastic. that bit. 155, yeah. right? 155, yeah. Each one believing that love never dies Watching their and hoping I'm... Yeah, I think uh, it's one of the ones that benefits from the simplicity of the arrangement. You know, it's ve if you put it on headphones, you know, there's not much going on. And what's great about that is you can just hear everything and, and those banks of harmonies. I mean, if it had been an ELO record or something like that, they'd be there, but they'd kind of be lost and buried. But those harmonies, I, I don't know if George Martin helped work them out but they are just so good and they get equal billing you know with the lead vocal mm, which is great and i like the fact that they left in the electric guitar here because this would be you know obviously such a sweet song let's just do it with the orchestra but that kind of percussive electric guitar i think that really helps it's nice yeah um a couple of fun facts about this song it was inspired by love uh by god only knows by the beach boys ah because Paul okay. was a big fan of yes. um, Pet Sounds. Yep. So he, he was inspired by that. And he wrote it at John's house while he was waiting for John to wake up. He That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so he just knocked it off in five minutes, right? And, yeah. And apparently when he woke up, they just finished the song off. Have you have you heard the finger clicks at the end? Um, no, I haven't. Ah, I was listening very carefully this week and I noticed for the first time that there were finger snaps and so I looked it up uh, in my reference book and they're all credited for doing the finger snaps so there were four Beatles on there snapping <laughs> Just, their fingers great yeah there is a version on give my regards to Broad Street have you heard that version yes I heard that years ago but I don't have that album now is it any good well it's it's um, two steps down so, okay. Um, and it's it's more acoustic as well. I'll play a bit of it. Mm -hmm. See what you think. Yeah, play a bit of that. Yeah. To lead a better life, I need a love of my own. Here, making each day of the year, changing my. I think it's the only good thing that came out of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple of other good tracks on that. Uh, no More Lonely Nights isn't too bad. Yeah, yeah I like that song. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say that that is one of Paul McCartney's best melodies. I mean, there's a lot of competition, but I can't think of a better one right now. No. I think it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is a great song. A beautiful 
beautiful and a beautiful i mean maybe some people might think it was slightly saccharine but just a beautiful song about falling in love it is many people i think well i was reading reviews about this song ian mcdonald doesn't really like it um the author of revolution in right yeah he's uh, he probably said that it was a little bit saccharine yeah um but i i think it's a brilliant song i think it's a, it's one of his best love songs um what's so, next what's let's next? move on yeah um what about it? what about and your bird can sing right um mm-hmm. uh, well first of all since you're playing the uh, different versions and it's really nice that you've got them to hand mm-hmm. can we hear a bit of the anthology version um is that where they laugh yes <laughs> Let me see if I can find it quickly. Just play about 10 seconds of that. But I've never heard anything quite like this. Yeah, here it is. One second. Yeah, you don't hear that during the White Album sessions. <laughs> My, the question is, why did they leave the tape running? <laughs> I, I mean, had, 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 the, had the engineer just gone to the toilet or what? That or the engineer was having fun as well. Yeah. <laughs> because they were obviously overdubbing it. I love that. Yeah, yeah, they were doing some overdubs. Yeah, I, I love that because they laugh basically for three minutes. Something's really... Um, crack them up whatever that might be yeah it's, it's, and it's, it's good they left it I, I don't know whether because something i've noticed with the anthology versions is that they've been edited a little bit yeah um if yeah. you listen to the easter demos and then you listen to the versions they include on the anthology you can see right produced a little bit yeah I but I one of the things that. i don't know did you see uh, rick rubin in on the mccartney 321 recently yes. um when when they get to and your bird can sing they're there at the mixing desk and they just isolate the two guitars. And, and this is using the characteristic sound, what you said, the epiphones, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just fantastic. Like they're, they're not playing exactly the same part, but they're playing, you know, a similar part. And just the, just the raw excitement there. It's amazing. And then, excuse me, the bass line is just incredible as well. I just. Know. Endlessly chopping and changing, just amazing. It's quite similar if if you look at the way the, the melody, the bass melody goes. It's quite similar to Taxman. Ah, okay. Have you noticed it goes like dum 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 dum? Similar. I play a bit of it. See if you can. Okay. And another thing worth mentioning about this song is the harmonies are great. They're yeah, brilliant. harmonies are amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, the bass line gets very, you know, very um, inventive and melodic, you know. So it's when it's when McCartney starts, uh, he's kind of off the leash here. Mm-hmm. You know, for several albums now, he's writing counter melodies on the bass. Yeah, that's when he changed basses as well. He stopped using yeah. his, um, his Hofner bass. And I think oh. he, switched, he switched to a Rickenbacker. You are such a train spotter. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Here's something I learned. So I want to say that in the history of, of rock and roll, we've got a, an unsurpassed four-song run here. I mean, um, so they recorded these um, consecutively, not on the same day. So Paperback Writer, Rain... Dr. Robert and this. I mean, wow. that's fantastic. I mean, what they must have just been in seventh heaven having a run like that. I know. They must have had a good I mean, all oh, fantastic songs. Yeah, exactly. And again, the bass line on Rain is great. It's one of his best bass lines. Yeah. So, um, 
for anyone who doesn't know, um, the single, um, well, one of the anomalies about the Beatles, and uh, one of the things that they were stuck with is that they weren't kind of allowed to put singles on albums. So they would do albums of routinely 14 songs, but then they had to come up with singles Mm. separately from that so these two wonderful tracks paperback writer and rain weren't even on this album can you imagine how good the album would would have been adding those songs um the record label wanted to get stuff out so um paperback writer and rain was released in the you know in the middle of the sessions in june i think mm-hmm. yeah it's crazy isn't it and it wasn't until 1987 when they released the past masters albums that they put all of the singles on one on, well, on two CDs in this case. Yeah, so anyone collecting the LPs just wouldn't have these uh, singles. And Rain is, uh, the, well, the, the you know, I mean, it's, even, a, it's an iconic very, song. Even very famous ones like Hey Jude or She Loves You yep. or I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things about Rain is... Um, it just often gets eulogized, I think, and by, you know, because it's less lesser known. I think, you know, it's got that cachet of being like a deep cut for the Beatles, right? And, you know, they're kind of less regimented on Rain. It's a, it sounds a little bit more like an indie song. And the, the other thing about Rain is what you're saying, just a, a, a bass line that's often imitated by anyone who wants to sound psychedelic and just drums that are just manic uh, by Ringo. So it's a kind of... It's a wilder Beatles song than, you know, because most of their stuff's kind of, you know, uh, arranged well. And this one's just uh, Beatles, um, yeah, off the hook, right? I mean, you know, off the leash again. Yeah. Definitely. Can you play in a bit of rain? Here goes. Another fun fact about this song, we're talking about the uh, backwards guitar solo. This one has backward vocals at the end. Absolutely. Uh, and the first time that was used. Yeah. Um, do you know the story? No, I don't know the story. <laughs> I don't know well either, but I think John Lennon went home with the tapes and p- uh, uh, put put it on backwards by accident, because that's easy to do with one of those old uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders, and then just got fascinated by the sound and wanted to use it it's just i i think it's just the first part of the vocal reversed yeah i think yeah i think it says rain or something let me just go to it once yeah yeah i think it's the first line yeah so I believe that that's I'm the sure the, first... ca- the Catholic Church had a field day with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't know at the time. Uh, <laughs> didn't know what was being done. Yeah. I think I think that's the first uh, occurrence of backwards anything in a rock and roll record. Uh, although it may, they may have done it before on one of George Martin's comedy records or something, but uh, I think that's the first, uh, you know, first of so many. Yeah. And do you know the Oasis connection? No. Um, so before Oasis were Oasis, they were Rain. Oh, you know, right. Na- named after that track. So, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Do we have time? So we, we started late. So do we have time for a yeah, couple let's more? About, yeah, let's talk about a couple more songs. Okay. So let's talk about... Your chance. Let me have a look at the track list. Um, we were talking before about I'm Only Sleeping, so we kind of covered that one. For No One, since we were talking about Paul's um, love songs, I really like For No One. It's such a brilliant um, kind of breakup l- love song. Did he write yeah. it for Jane Asher? Yeah, well, he wrote it when he was on holiday with Jane Asher, and, pres- and I think their relationship might have been on uh, Plateau. I don't really know. It is very perceptive. Mm. And it's his, I mean, I think it's probably his best sort of kitchen sink character drama, you know. Um, I mean, one of my friends who's a playwright just loves this song because of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And it's worth saying that 
I mean, just in terms of lyrics, not just this song. Um, the Beatles, up to this point, they've been writing love songs more or less, apart from maybe the word. I mean, they're all little love stories, slightly twisted on Rival, uh, on the Rubber Soul, but still love stories. But by the time this album comes around, everything's changed, right? I mean, and for no one, and Eleanor Rigby are actually, you know, pretty bleak lyrics. I mean, mm-hmm. Eleanor Rigby mentions, you know, death, not a big theme for pop music. Uh, I think, you know, I think they were just getting into plays and getting into films and thinking, well, you know, we, we don't always have to write love stories or we don't we don't always have to write happy things. And this one obviously is a, a love story, but it's bleak. Which I think is the whole kind of theme of the album in that sense. They could be themselves a little bit more than in yeah, the record. It was going to be called, one of the alternative titles was Four Corners of the Circle, apparently. So it's, it's them being themselves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, um, I really love the solo as well. Is it a French horn? Absolutely. And it was written by the horn player, uncredited. Yeah. Oh, uncredited. N- not written by Macro. And one thing, one thing I got from Ian McDonald, I love his book, and he mentions that it resolves, it, it, it finishes on an unresolved chord. So rather than the, 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 the chord of the key, it's on the dominant, which is a related chord, kind of mirroring, and this is what's clever, this is what's artistic about the Beatles, it mirrors the story. The story's unresolved, we don't know whether they stay together or break up, and so the song is, by ending on a chord like that, it's left hanging in midair. That's, that's beautiful. You know. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it's, um, I wonder whether that was George Martin's idea or whether it was Paul's. Oh, it could be George Martin. It's a really, it is like an idea from classical music. Yeah. I mean, it's just fantastic, that ending. And also, yeah. just something else, I think this is the beginning of Paul's peak vocal period. I mean, you've talked before about how you like Paul's singing in 68 and 69. This is the start of it. It's a really expressive vocal, but really unembellished. So he doesn't, you know, um, add vibrato or anything like that. There's no, there's no technique to the vocals. It's just as it is, right? Like with the the verses of Hey Jude or something. Mm-hmm. It's just totally honest. It's not in character because, of course, he does so many of those character vocals, and it's just perfect for this song. And it was so well produced as well. Like it doesn't have a lot of reverb. Um, it's it's yeah, as you it's said, great. It's very natural. again, again with the four track. I think that's uh, that's uh, just fantastic. Yeah, um, you know, they, they, it's so so simple. The, so much space. Very short. Only one minute fifty nine seconds. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think we have to do our last one. Yep. Which one would you like to do? The time limit. Um, shall we talk about? We could do. She said. She said. Okay. Okay, because we haven't really done a. Well, we started with tomorrow never knows, and we haven't really done a John song. Um, yeah, fair. Yeah, I, I I really like that song. Um, there is kind of um when I when I went to England when I was about eighteen years old, I went yeah. to Camden Town and I bought the Alternative Revolver, which was a bootleg with alternative versions of um of of most of the songs on the album. Yeah, and, and there was a demo um of this song which I thought was really good. I'm gonna see if I can find it. Oh, that would be great. You've got all this obscure stuff. Yeah, I was I was surprised. It was like. I think, yeah, here it is. One second. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. And it's making me feel like I've never been born. That line, it's making me feel like my trousers are gone. He <laughs> <laughs> and who put all that crap in your head was changed as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, of course, you know the story behind that song. 
I don't know. So um, I guess the Beatles were in Los Angeles on on tour, um, and they uh, this was a psychedelic trip with. Uh, John Lennon and uh, Roger McGuinn and David Crosby from The Birds. Mm-hmm. And um, they ran into Peter Fonda, a famous actor, and he said, you know, I don't know if he was tripping as well. And he said, you know, I, I know what it's like to be dead, man. And uh, it's quite sort of disorientating for John. And I, I think this is one of his first really really psychedelic songs there's a lot of the same kind of disorientation here in the lyric that you get in in strawberry fields you know Mm -hmm. the stop starting you're not finishing ideas um changing to changing the time when he talks about when he was a boy and everything so you know this wonderful evocation of what it's like to to do that yeah Again, the guitar sound is amazing as well. Uh, oh. We talk about the production of the song and the vocals are really good. Again, uh, I think slightly speeded up. It doesn't say that in um, in what I looked up, but it, again, it sounds like in the final version, just slightly speeded up that vocal just to get that edge of kind of excitement, you know. I think they did that with a few tracks. I think another track where they did it is I'm Only Sleeping. Yeah, uh, oh, Definitely. Uh, Definitely on that one for Even sure. Because the key of the song is, I think, um, I think it's in the flat, so it's one um, semitone higher than the normal guitar tuning. This uh, is the trilogy of John songs on this album. Uh, you know, she said, "I'm only sleeping." Tomorrow never knows. That kind of makes it a really psychedelic album and a really helps it be a really innovative album. But I like the fact that they were all innovating on this. Yeah. I mean, for many people, I think this is this album is is peak Beatles, and I remember seeing this in in um, you know it always used to be Sgt. Pepper right mm-hmm. that topped the charts, and I remember seeing it in Q magazine or Mojo magazine or something more than twenty years ago. Um, number one album, you know, I think it was a competition between this and OK Computer by. Radiohead, but I remember at the time thinking, you know, being surprised. Oh, you know, Revolver is is the number one, but I think for a lot of people it is the best Beatles album, and and I think for some people it's the best album of all time. It, how about for you? Is it your favorite Beatles album? Um, I don't know. It's just too short. <laughs> it is quite short, yes. It's just. It, I think if you put if you put paperback right to rain on it, um, and if you made tomorrow never knows longer, and so you take it's got a lot of potential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. I yeah, just but, want. To I mean, it. you could say the same about Sergeant Pepper. If you put Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, it'd be my exactly. favorite album. Or if you put exactly uh, on, on the White album, and yeah, read a Revolution Number Nine. It's very hard for me to say what my favorite album is between sixty-seven and between sixty-six and seventy, but it's this is an album with few flaws. Yeah. I love this. I love this quotation. I'm going to finish off with this quotation from uh, Philip Norman. I really like this. So this is from the book Shout, which uh, Paul McCartney famously called "shite," yes. <laughs> because I think he gets a bad press at some point, but. Um, you know, with a sort of rhetorical flourish, he says, Revolver was London as she flourished in the swinging summer afterglow. It was hot pavements, open windows, King's Road bistros, and England soccer stripes. It was the present and a portent of things to come. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's a real evocation of, of summer. And it's just bursting with vital energy and experimentation. Yeah, you know, they, they, they could hardly put a foot wrong. Now that you say that, now, th- that was the summer when England won the, foot- the Football World Cup. It was. It so was. there must have been this kind of um, air of, of, of positivity going around. I remember when, when that happened in Spain, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah, and I, I just I hope you know that it was a hot spring as well. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know whether that was a nice hot spring, but it had you know good day sunshine. Mm-hmm. Paint it black was out that same at that same time. Daydream by the Loving Spoonful. 
Summer in the City by Loving Spoonful. So many, you know, and the kink sunny afternoon as well. So it was just 1966 was just a year to eulogize the sun. Yeah. So I hope they got a decent weather for it. Except for the song Rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Bernardo, it's been just fantastic. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and I guess we will, um, the next meeting will probably be in two weeks' time. Mm hmm. And we haven't chosen the album yet. If you want to cho choose one off the cuff, you can. Or we can decide that as we go. Let's decide and let's announce okay. it on, on social media. next week. Okay, that's what we'll do. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Sherston and Nadia for joining us. Mm -hmm. That was great. And um, see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.